0: Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Hey? <laughs> so I've got um, Ross here with me from Olive Tree Church. If you don't know him, he's married to Amy. And she's an occupational therapist, right? And she runs KANISA, which is a school for children with um, <laughs> learning difficulties and with um, special needs, right? And they're doing very well. A, a huge impact they're making in the city. And this is Sia, who is, I would say... Ross is your right-hand man, right? (laughs) Sometimes, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) (laughs) he has been so. Ross looks good on Sundays. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Ah, That's (laughs) That's why I'm saying he's your right-hand man. (laughs) So today we're going to be talking about um, cross-cultural ministry, multicultural. Sorry, and um, just Olive Tree is is a very multicultural um, church, and. Just a scripture that stuck out for me with you guys, Ross, is from Jeremiah 29, where it says, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've called you. If it prospers, so will you. And that makes me think of your church. You guys have made a huge impact in the city over the years, even the guys before you that we knew. And so we're very excited to hear your journey. And so I'm going to take a seat and ask them some questions because um, God's got a lot that I think he wants to say through them. And so the first one for me, Ross, tell us your journey of your church, Olive Tree, um, the journey that you guys went on to becoming multicultural.
1: Thank you. It's, uh, it's actually quite funny, me speaking here. You know, you know, if you had to choose between Paul or Peter to speak into multicultural environments, you would choose Paul every day of the week. Uh, but I'm like Peter. I'm the who got tricked into it. That's that's what happened with me. Peter Watt over there is the guy who went and lived in Chesterville and uh, and learnt how to do this from the heart. He is <laughs> definitely Paul. He is Paul. Uh, but uh, I, uh, I realise your journey into this space is critical and your context is critical. And so I'm going to tell the story because you you can land yourself in so much trouble when you say this is how we do multicultural church in a different context a city context is so utterly different to a suburb context which is so utterly different to a peri-urban context like we could just it would be silly for me to go this is what will work that isn't the story the story is this is how god bullied me into where we're at (laughs) And hopefully uh, this might serve aspects of that. But um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> the, the, what I realize God does, he, he kind of puts a passion that will then have to face something somewhere along the line. So I have a, a deep impact. In fact, I walked away from being in ministry at one stage because I felt like the church wasn't really making a difference in the city. We needed transformation. So one of the huge values in my life is how does the church make an impact? That thing was critical to this journey. There's a second thing, a value that just lives inside of me. I mean, my wife leads a special needs school with 61 people and staff, and she's just started the next one. Like, she's a machine. But it's a special needs school. And the thing about both her and I is we just don't think God made junk. Every single person... Has potential that just has to be discipled into into something effective. Everybody has that, mm-hmm. so he puts this inside of you, and then and then you have to work it out with these easy things called people. But uh, <coughs> along the journey, what happened was um, it it started with the city impact stuff. I I was <coughs> I probably have a bit of a bent towards business ministry guys in business i just enjoy them i I enjoy the conversations i just naturally have lots of friends in business and i started to realize that the top echelons of business the most wealthy guys or most influential guys had many white guys had relationships with black guys and vice versa and indians and then as you went down the tiers there's just this gap white guys were all on their own black guys were all on their own indian guys were all on their own there was no connection and so I started to think to myself, well, if we're going to make an impact in the city, amongst businessmen especially, we can't keep – we can't just have the most influential guys mixing. We have to have it sweep down. And so we would run business uh, meetings regularly, and probably once a term we'd have a big one with a few hundred people there. And, and so I started – I went, I'm bored of listening to middle-aged white guys tell me how they did it. Let's get some people from – from different people let's get some black guys let's get some black ladies to speak let's get some Indian people and and so I started to invite different people and that took me on a journey because as soon as you know what it's like you invite a speaker you want to get to know the dude before and then as you start to get some of my good friends started coming out of that and I started mixing another thing I just want to throw into this is that I'm a Zimbabwean which um especially for the black people here, is a very different experience to South African white. Um, I'm in many ways very dumb when it comes to the pain, the underlying racism, like a lot of that stuff. So when I was growing up, My school, my primary school was 80% black. My senior school was 60% black. One of my best friends who I'd sleep at his house, his name was Tunga. He would sleep at my house. Like, that's how I grew up. And so we had the colonial background and all that mess. But we didn't have South African. South African. (laughs) (laughs) And and so, uh, listen, can we just, like, all own it? We're all racists. Okay, now we got that out the way. <laughs> Mine was just very different. And so I came in with a very curious, like, well, why couldn't we do this? And and I just started engaging. So it started, I guess, with um, the business ministry, and that took me on a journey to friendships. Now, I'll, I'll just tell you a story. I hope I don't go too long. Here's, here's just a quick story. One of my mates, an African born and bred black guy who started from like he was in a taxi at once st- like he was running a the guy organizing the lifts in the taxi is now a multi multi-millionaire he invites me to his home and he says to me because uh, we're good mates now and he's joking with me he says he says to me Ross you know I don't know how to manage this darn house because you white people you didn't let us learn from you guys so I have a pool problem that's leaking and I have a verge problem that's, that's and there's a crack in the wall. I don't know what to do with this thing. and And so, help me. That moment was one of the most critical moments in my journey. Because we'd got to a space of friendship where he was able to be vulnerable about stuff that everyone else keeps hidden. And and i could serve him and he'd serve me in so many different ways but uh, the essence of proximity if you want to get multicultural right you just have to have proximity you have to be close to people so that you are having conversation so that was huge the second thing that that god probably led me through was i, I built a relationship with a church called father's house in p e. george georgia is a greek guy uh and he will tell you that one of his advantages is nobody knows what color he is so uh <laughs> so you don't know whether this is a colored guy a white guy mediterranean and he just plays it i mean he doesn't try and pretend and um and but he has an understanding of serving people where they're at and so the way he views himself he won't tell you this but I'll tell you on his behalf uh he He sees himself as a restaurateur. He prepares a meal, spiritually, but a restaurant is is catalyzed by its environment, by the environment you create. And so if you knew what his budget was on creating an environment that feels safe for multiple different colors, it would freak you out. But he started speaking to me. He said to me, he said, Russ, you know, with black people... If you're going to create a church that they can walk into and feel safe in, you can't have scatter cushions that look like this. You can't have signage that looks like that. You have to create an environment that they naturally engage in. Which is why next chapter on Florida Road works. And I can tell you 50 other restaurants that don't form multicultural spaces. Why? Because they create environments. That conversation led me to ask so many different questions. Now, again and again, this is probably irritating you because you're going like, when is he going to bring the Bible in? I don't know if I will. <laughs> but, uh, but what I was doing was helping me ask the right questions. Most of the problem with people trying to do multicultural churches, they don't ask the right questions so they don't know how to serve. And you can't serve if you don't understand the context in to which you're serving. So that helped me hugely. Um, then a third thing, uh, we started an internship program because there was like a catalyst thing. Some of you would have known about this, and you basically could pay your interns for free. It didn't cost you anything. So I'm a Zimbabwean, so I milked it. I, I got a whole bunch of guys, and um, I'm sitting talking to them the one day about Africa, and one of the girls says to me, Africa and Africans are cursed. And I remember like being shocked and I, I said to her why and she said well whether it's the um, the thing of we're highly resourced and highly resourced places always get taken advantage of or whether there's a spiritual curse on us and, and she talked a little bit and it sent me on a journey and i started doing tons of research and uh and w- when you start doing the research you realize the Theology that drove a lot of racism and colonialism was was out of Genesis nine, the Noah. The problem was Noah cursed Canaan, and Ham came to Africa. I mean, it's amazing. Like it's just like bad theology. It, it, they got the wrong oak. I mean, it's it's that bad. And so, I started. I just started doing a talk. Uh, it came. I did it with interns. And then I I told my one mate about it, and then he started telling other people. And the next thing, I was sitting in front of a bunch of – I was at the ICC the one day doing a a talk for a friend, and she said to me, no, 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 you must do that other talk. And so I I did this talk on on how Africa is not cursed. Poverty is a curse, but you can't deal with that curse. You need to deal with this curse, and and I I just preached a a message of how to – turn the curse into the blessing through jesus a politician came up to me afterwards and he said i've never heard a white man speak like this i've never heard this before in my life please will you pray for me thank you so much and i started to realize okay maybe god you're doing something in this fairly guys listen that oak has got the heart for this this like woke up one day and had a multicultural church. But this was the journey. And then there were probably a, a couple of other things. Told me to shut up when I'm going too far. <laughs> uh, after the internship, uh, Black Lives Matter hit the streets. And because I'm a Zimbabwean and an idiot, I thought, let's talk about this. And, uh, and I did quite an average to bad job on it. I want you to know that the day that I was about to address the issue... I had to turn my phone off because white people were phoning me and swearing at me. It was the most hectic experience of my life and they didn't even know what I was going to say. And literally, all I had to say... I mean, I was getting phone calls from Salt Rock. I was getting phone from all over the show because we had a hashtag Black Lives Matter logo on our, on our Facebook. I I was so... Blown away because all we were gonna say is, man, before you pick a side on this thing, you need to hear each other's stories. You just have to learn some empathy. Anyway, we lost a whole bunch of people in our church. And like it was it was phenomenal, the impact. And at that moment, I realized I realized how little I actually knew about South Africa. Because you think you know it, but then you really start to when you start scratching you realize oh we're in we're in a lot of trouble but that conversation whether we did it badly or not plus a couple of other things I think created a safe environment for black people in our church it suddenly created a little bit of safety and then (laughs) this is going to be funny but during COVID so we started off I guess, as a what, 90% white church? I don't know, somewhere there, 80% white church. And then, and then during COVID, do you know what white people are like? They weren't prepared to lead worship because in, in level five lockdown, because they would get COVID from the next day. I mean, you've you got to love it. The black folks were like, of course we'll come sing. Mosque, what's that? And in and they came. And, uh, and so our, our worship had one white guy and a whole bunch of very gifted black guys. And ladies singing. And that messaging sent just across the people that we were kind of reaching, sent this, like, hey, you're safe here message. And so I had people come up to me, black people come up to me and say, you know what, we used to walk past this church and we never went in because it was a white church. But now we've realized it's changed and we feel safer. And it just began to shift things. And so, end of COVID, um, you know, the number one reason for church growth after COVID is that people moved to your area. Well, uh, Morningside changed quite dramatically. So we woke, we went to sleep, and it was a fairly mixed area. And then we woke up, and it was coloured, black, Indian, where are those white eyes? Anyway, they're gone. And uh, and then we we started to realise, man, this is a multicultural church. Now. In that space, I just want to speak to you because if your church changes, you've got, to, you've got to be prepared for this. You've just lost a ton of mates who are like you and think like you and, and are easy to do life with. And God has just given you a whole bunch of beautiful people who you don't know are beautiful yet. Let me just tell you, that's easy on the soul. It doesn't take any strain. I'm completely joking. It is brutal. (laughs) And you have to have a theology that is so fixed in God placed me, he's called me, and these people have potential that I'm called to release, I'm called to reach in, and we're still called to make an impact in the city. Just we're differently influential now. So best you find what the talent is sitting there so that you can release it. So that's the journey to how we woke up one day and we were a multicultural church that I think is really beautiful. There's the story.
0: Nice. <laughs> and so it's God made it, uh, I mean, the, the space, you, you worked with God to make the space, right, for multicultural. I mean, it's not <coughs> like you rejected it, you were like... Owning it, right?
1: Yeah, a bit like Peter, got the vision <laughs> and then the oaks are at the door. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Sia, you, you came to the church in 2016, you were saying, right? And um, so you lead the young adults and you lead the evening service, that's right. And so tell us a bit, um, You, I, I've heard that you're quite intentional, like with uh, building young people um, in terms of being multicultural? What did did that look like for you? What did you exactly do?
2: Uh, Okay, with the remaining two minutes. um (laughs) 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 Just had to take my chance. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that journey kind of started when I was working for one of our sites, um, which was very white. And the beginning was very cool. Like, I always just bring my friends around, but I got to a point, where I, I'll just be honest about that, I was tired of being the black guy in church. Like, it was actually got to a point where it wasn't cool. Now I always say that's no one's fault. It wasn't, it's was the nature of the location. All of these things play a role in uh, the dynamics of the demographics, demographics that you get in church. So, that started to egg in my soul a little bit. I wanted to paint a picture of what heaven had looked like one day and need a ministry that. that uh, paints a picture of what heaven is going to look like one day. Now, there was a dream, there was a heart desire, but obviously I had no real plan on how to do that. Uh, the one thing that I did have was uh, God's help and incredible gifting, uh, not, not to like speak too highly of myself, but I think I'm gifted in a way that allows me to, I can have a conversation with anyone, young, old, uh, middle-aged, black, white, Indian, and I think I do a fairly good job just because of environmental impact as well as God's gifting to m- be sensitive enough in that conversation to make the person feel safe, feel seen, mm-hmm. feel welcome, feel loved, all the things that actually make someone feel like I could come back here because of this person mm-hmm. that engaged me. So that's how God has gifted me. So I knew those, enough of those things to be like, cool, if you want to reach young people, and we know, we, most of us might know this age-old saying that uh, people don't um, care about what you know until they know that you care. So we needed to create an environment where young people felt like they could connect with someone or connect with people. I was listening to a John Markoma thing on hospitality yesterday, and he says that um, the LGBTQ community does a better job of, of being hospitable than the church does. So if we are already starting at like negative five, there's a lot of work to be done to actually just get to the neutral and then get to the positive end. So that was a dream, that was a goal, and I knew, okay, we need to create a, an environment that makes young people feel safe. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna have to run it at, at the beginning, because obviously there's no leadership team. I had to trust God, and every single person that's on our leadership team, I chose and uh, followed God's leading and prompting to invite into uh, onto leadership. And they're all different demographics, white, Indian, colored, uh, black. Uh, yeah, that's all of them. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> um, they they cover all, the, but that, it's not like it was a strategy. Yeah. It was really just a leading by the Holy Spirit to be like that person's ready to be asked. Because it took time. Obviously, it took maybe a year, or maybe a year and a bit, to get to 18 leaders uh, to lead our ministry. Um, but along the way, what I would do is because I know that I'm a machine at, ma- at like welcoming people and having conversations and make people feel like they're the most important person in that moment. Any, I'm your best hype man. Like that's the easiest thing that I could do. So every single person walk up, I would hype them up and any potential leader or someone that has laid in my heart to be invited to leadership, I'd rope them into the conversation. Cause I don't I don't want the culture of connecting to people to just exist within myself. I want to teach our guys, we create an environment of welcoming and safety and love and caring. So this person who might not necessarily be easily um can easily just walk up to someone and have a conversation. I've now created a bridge between that and engaging with someone that they don't know or have never spoken to. So one of the, pr- the people that is also very good at having first-time conversations with someone is Jonathan. So I'd, some, someone would rock up, I'd welcome them, have a s- short conversation. Hey, have you guys met Jono? Jono, this is so-and-so. Stay there for about five minutes, and I'd watch him engage with the guys and see how good he actually does, and if the conversation feels safe enough for me to leave, I'd leave and go chat to somebody else. And I would just do this week in and week out the first few weeks, when I say to you, m- there's like a ton of white people, a ton of black people, a ton of Indian, a ton of um, what race am I missing? Colored. <laughs> um, we just created an environment that made every single one of them feel safe. Because the most fundamental thing that uh, every single human being is looking for is to feel seen, safe, loved, and connected to. So when we got that part right, where people fea- felt connected to a very large degree, then you can begin to roll out the, all the other stuff. So we had somewhat of a, of a pretty good um I don't want to say step by step thing. This is like our guidance and it's really rooted in biblical um observation is that once they're connected, we have to get them saved. Like once they're connected into our community, get them saved so they believe in Jesus, get them filled with the Holy Spirit and activating and operating in their spiritual gifts and then get them serving the city and serving your church and the greater church of Durban really. Um, so once we did all of those things We decide that. They don't set the model of how we do our ministry. We created that model, and they get to fit into that model. But the most important step was making guys feel connected, uh, seen, safe, loved, all those things that are important on the front end, which is why I think our hospitality teams, our welcoming teams, are the most underrated people in our church. Because the first five seconds of when someone walks into your building are the most important. Your car guards, how you select your car guards, is the most important thing because they are the first experience people have of your church, but we often think, okay, now nah, I'll just hire just about anyone. Yeah. Um, I had to have a very hard conversation with some of our car guards about, like, around, like, uh, how do you smell when you come to work? What you do the night before is important. The how, Like, your facial expression. All those things are because you are not just a, a car guard. You can't yeah. just, like, be lax. You actually have to really represent Olive Tree because mm-hmm. people experience you first yeah. before they ever get to the door. Yeah. So all those things play an important role in how safe people feel before they ever get to, like, oh, my gosh, this message is amazing. Mm-hmm. The worship is incredible. That, I think, is secondary to how did I feel when I was in that space. Mm-hmm. Now, Ross, I've told, this, I've told him this story. Uh, not told him, but told, shared the story to church. But the first time I came to Olive Tree, um, <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> the first time I came to Olive Tree, uh, uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh, the first time I came to Olive Tree, uh, I, because I'd come from a different church and I had like some understanding of the dynamics of church, I had expectations. Like, mm-hmm. cool, someone's going to welcome me, walk me to my seat, you know, because like, that's what I, the environment I came from. Guys at the door were just on their phone. Uh, so I kind of just walked in and was like, <laughs> cool. Carried on walking. I didn't know where to go, like which direction, or like is it upstairs, because all the doors were closed. Yeah. Um, and then this, this one lady came, and she greeted me with a big smile, like, okay, she's going to help me. She just carried on walking. <laughs> so like, cool. So now I just followed one guy who looked like I knew where he was going, walked in, um, sat, enjoyed the service. was phenomenal. Walked out. Again, no one spoke to me afterwards, and I, had a, I just stood there by myself, was like, okay, cool. When I went home, I was like, I'm never coming back here again. Uh, and the thing that, in the conversation, <laughs> <laughs> the, in the conversation with God, the, the thing that was most, Pressed in my soul was if you leave, that'll never change. Because you know how that feels like. Be the person that makes the difference in the space. So I went back and I signed up to serve the very next Sunday. So I was there, welcoming in the f- in the f- in the front. So it's really modeling on the front end and then bringing people along the journey, no matter no matter the race, to understand the importance of why we do the things that we do. So they aren't just doing a function or doing a task but they are connected to the reasoning why we get to do the things that we do. Because it's not just about, oh, I'm just going to set up a chair. No, that that chair that you're setting up is someone's seat. There's, that, that's a host of the Holy Spirit. Someone's going to rest there and experience. So you, you could literally pray over every seat as you set the seats, yeah. uh, so that when someone walks in and sits there, they're already so whatever. So you give far greater reasoning to why people do stuff than just, okay, I'm just going to put it, or just stand here and welcome, or do whatever. So. That's a little bit of the reasoning and the desire for my
0: Excellent. Training. It's such intentionality. Hey? I think, like that whole thing of sometimes we see where God wants to take us, but it's the process of becoming that model. And sometimes God speaks that over us. Hey? And as we obey him, it becomes clearer. It becomes clearer to people. And that's obviously what you've done. We need like 100 seers, right? <laughs> 100 million seers. <laughs> and your, your name says it all, right? Seer. A prophetic person. <laughs> so um, did the two of you have, like, um, did you go on any significant heart journey along the way? And were there moments where you you were, um, like, hooked with each other in a this lot. journey of, a lot.
2: of <laughs> us and I just becoming multicultural? Years. Tell us about it. <laughs> um, no. I don't think so. Maybe Ross is a different experience. Okay. I, think, yeah, I guess if it comes out now, we'll can sozo after <laughs> this. I
0: like I'm just wondering what hooked <laughs> means uh, because, like, yeah, in Durban, hook is like a punch, right? Oh, no. So I think there was like not, a, it wasn't that, right? So sometimes
2: <laughs> a white person can say something, or a black yeah. person can say something, or a colored person can say something in jest or, in, like, with no real ill intent that can really just hurt a person or just, like, cause that, like,. Um, a triggering thing within a person's uh, emotional yeah. state of being, or whatever the case might be. So, hook is like, oof, that w- that didn't actually land to all or feel too good. Uh, so, that's what we mean by hook. Now, this is where I think um, my back story is has helped this relationship uh, because. So, I grew up in Greytown. I went to English and African school and from grade R I was in uh, in white schools English African school from grade 1 up until matric my parents never ever bickered or moaned about like oh white people this or white people that they just were so focused on giving their best to the kids um, with the absolute best that they had I was exposed to very white environments um, from a very young age Uh, I wasn't really to to my recollection like exposed to high levels of racism enough for for me to have like be on the defensive at any given point in a conversation. like I'm always waiting for someone to like, hook me or hurt me or whatever else. I wasn't ever exposed to that because uh, even the white people that I got to experience were so friendly, so kind, so caring, uh, really wanted to give me the best, exposed me to like, a different way of living than, than uh, I would have otherwise been exposed to if I wasn't in those environments. So the starting place already is like... Um, so I think I, I probably... On the side of not doing a good job of understanding the pain of black people and the racism that they actually really got to experience, and not just our uh, so our generation works on the pain of the generation that came before and not necessarily like i experienced I lived in racism, but because it 's like almost passed down uh, that 's a pain realm so but we need to understand the generation above and the pain that they experience enough to really begin to do the work of okay, now how do we do things differently going forward? I'm really of, the advoca- of an advocate of, okay, yes, that's how things were done before, but it doesn't mean we have, have to do the same things now to achieve the same result or achieve some certain result. We need to figure out a different way to make a difference, a different way to create impact, a different way to bring about change. It can't just be that this is the only way that works. I refuse to believe that. And that's just intrinsic in my own way of doing life. So by the time I got to Ross... I'd like I did experience some racism in the Western Cape. I won't lie. Like there was uh, George is <laughs> very very racist, um, but those things were laughable to me. Like are we really still here? Are we really still like living our lives that way? Um, surely now the work should be understanding. So we do things differently. So when I by the time we got here and started having those conversations, they were easy conversations. Ross has never said something that I actually had to go home and be like mm, I'm not sure if I, how I feel about that. Um, the thing that maybe would be like a potential hook is someone that I don't know. If someone says something that, um, uh, like, for example, went to a conference not too long ago and someone greeted me in Zulu, now the first thing I always go to is, like, I want to understand why you felt the need to do that. Are you subtly implying that I don't really speak English that well or I can't speak English? Or are you trying to be kind or you say, hey, let me just meet you at your level? What level is that? And, like, all those things run through my mind before I even answer you back. So, but be, that, that could be like a, are we going to fight now? No I have to understand before I even get to a point of responding but before any of that it's like someone says that now like how why would you say that and it's like now let's fight I don't think that's the best response to those moments
1: <laughs> can, can I just speak to this so, so our journey that has probably produced the most health is regular conversations like that uh, understanding what and the Greatest gift the seer and a couple of my other staff are to me, is that they are soft hearts, tough skin. So, so they will point out where I'm racially stupid, and, um, and and help me see it differently, without getting massively offended. And and so, so if you're of a different color, the greatest gift you can do give is the starting place of the oaks just dwarf. Not he's evil. And, and so that's the gift they've given me. So I, I feel like I have had so many conversations, taking Rick down for worship at a wedding, driving here with this guy, just these constant conversations about, hey, how does that make you feel? Why are you voting for the EFF? Help me understand your view on what's happening in Florida Road. Like Constant curiosity creates a space where you you actually can work out how to serve your people. And so Sia is an, it's a non-ending gift that he doesn't get offended, but he'll say to me, oh, when that person did that, it felt a little bit weird. And I'm like, oh, don't do that. And then what I often find is that I go into environments. I had Sia at a brother one day with a bunch of white mates, and I almost died by how stupid they were. They just said stuff. Now, he had the grace to put up with it, but... But they just said stuff that they completely didn't mean to in any way offend. But because I'd had so many conversations with different guys, I was like, what are you thinking? you nuts. Like, you just don't go there. And and I think one of the bigger problems that we have at the moment is just too much emotion, not enough education. Just educating each other uh, amongst staff in an adult-to-adult way and not a parent-child kind of vibe.
0: So um, obviously that takes leadership, right? And like you were saying, like, to train the people is important so that they catch the heart. You're spending time. You're talking about investing time, learning. So in terms of your leadership style and your, um, just the way that you did stuff, tell us a bit about that. And like, what did you change and what did you keep the same?
1: So i um like she was talking about your hospitality um, where when we were a white church I didn't really put much energy into the hospitality team as a multicultural church I probably churn out I mean I churn out a video a month of training and I am engaging nonstop in helping our hospitality team get better or teams get better and here's why a black person walks into church. They look down. They don't look up at you, and the white person disengages, or the Indian person disengages, yeah. and so so what you actually will see if you watch just a social experiment, you will literally see people engage with their race, subconsciously because of social cues, and ignore the other races because of social cues, and so you have to consistently be driving in the heartbeat and then giving the skills. How do I engage with that person? How do I make that person feel welcome? What are they probably scared about? I mean, just imagine, you're walking into a church. You know what it's like when you walk into a new church. Unless you're a pastor or you've done this thing for years, you're starting places is anxiety. And so it's just how do you reduce anxiety as the person's coming in? And a lot of our environments actually just create huge amounts of anxiety. So, so one of the things we, well, I personally work on quite hard is the hospitality thing. I think uh, some of the things that stayed the same, and you can speak to us. We don't. We're not trying to be the church for everyone. So, so this is offensive to lots of people who are passionate about the multicultural space. We don't sing Zulu songs. We don't speak in we speak English the whole time intentionally. here's, here's why. I guess we are trying to reach a kind of model C type person but we have a church literally three kilometers down the road that's reaching someone in a slightly different lsm we're just going we need to reach that group of people and there are a ton of those people there are about six of those schools in morningside like right around us we have to think those people well if we're going to stay multicultural and we start singing in zulu it's not going to work that people are, white people are going to leave. Indian people are going to leave. Like It's just not going to happen. If we're going to speak in multiple languages, I get the heartbeat of that, but it's just going to be ineffective in terms of helping our people integrate. We have to neutralize to create integration, not, um, not create more diversity. It would just be too difficult at the moment. I don't know if you want to add. Yeah,
2: I think the thing with that as well is... Um, if let's just say for example ross and i because now olive tree church has become multicultural we change the way that we do things we're letting the church dictate how we feel called to do church and that i don't think is is the best way to respond to that and the, it also goes back to if now we're reacting to people in a certain way what are we actually communicating if you know what i'm saying, like. Um, are we trying to say oh yeah we're for black people, if you, black people if you sing black songs I don't think that's the case if anything else that is disingenuous because you aren't doing the work to actually connect with a black person you sing a black song does nothing to connect to a black person it's nice but I mean you still have to like <laughs> there's so much work that has to be done before you ever really get to that point um, so we stick to especially young adults ministry like the model we stick to our style people can decide if this is the my style of church or not. And that's okay. Like People can go where they're going to grow. But if people feel like this is the place that I feel safe, seen, loved, and this is the place where I can grow because our style is our style of church, then fantastic. Um, And our leadership style is always like now because we are multicultural doing the work of trying to understand all the different cultures that are in our church enough to when we engage in conversations we're not doing it from I'm looking down on you or I'm afraid looking up like you know we aren't doing it from a place of uh, um, pride or fear or whatever else but we genuinely want to connect to people because people matter and people have value and we want to do the work of making them feel like this place can be your home if you so choose, because at the end, it is still up to you if you want to call this place home. Um, so, we've got to keep true to our guns and not let how the dynamic of church changes change how we do church, just to, so we make them feel safe. There's so many other ways to do that, and we'll highlight that later on.
1: I mean, little things uh, that have actually helped the journey uh, humor is a great race neutralizer, like you can rip yourself off as a white person, that's not hard. Um, you've got to be careful on it, but what I realized very, very early on, careful. very careful on, on ripping off black-white, I, I wouldn't go there. But what I realized quite early on is my colored community would give it straight back, and they enjoyed it. Yeah. And the ones who didn't left, but I couldn't build with them anyway. And so I... I started engaging and just ripping off the bluff. And like just having quite intentional conversations, I generally would bounce off humor before, just to make sure it wasn't too awkward. And one day, a colored person comes up to me. And say, she, this lady said to me, she said, you know, it takes us as colored people a number of years before we trust a leader. But we now trust you. And... um and what had actually happened is my my dumb humor had opened up conversations. the conversations had led to trust, and over a period of consistency and time they'd connected now I 'm not saying be funny if you 're not funny, et etc, but what I am saying is find out ways to provoke relationship and conversation on the back end, especially if you 've got a crowd because Different colours will stay further away, so you have to provoke it to draw it closer, and then you have to engage, and you have to be really intentional about how you do that.
0: So, is there any questions from you guys that you're wanting to ask these two experts? I'm joking. What what time (laughs) did we finish? Yeah, well, we started at quarter past, right? So, we've got how how long still few questions. Yeah, and then then, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's true. Okay. So maybe we'll take two questions on the floor. All right. Um,
3: I just wanted to ask, when you said, Sia, that when somebody greets to you in in Zulu and you wonder about that, um, it's not really pertaining to to, um, the church, but my workplace. When you have someone that's of a different language
1: group um, and they are engaging in a multicultural situation, but in only in their language, how would you break down or how would you approach mm-hmm. something like that?
2: So can you ask the question differently? Question. I'm not sure if I understand. Um,
1: how do you um, react to people that are very much um, rooted in their um, culture to the ex- almost extreme. exclusion, oh, exclusion. Of, 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 a, of another culture. I don't know if you have that yeah. situation.
2: I yeah. don't know if I've ever experienced that level of extreme, but I always... So even let's just take that example of someone greeting uh, me in Zulu. I don't take offense to that. My starting point is I want to understand that yes. person's reasoning yes. to get to that point. I think because I'm naturally someone who actually just... Even the most extreme case, like I'll paint an example for, like when I was in George, for example, um, a friend of mine, we staying in the supposed white part of town. Um, and so we were leaving youth one Friday, we were walking across to our house, it must have been like 20 minutes f- from our house. And bef- prior to that, like a um, neighborhood watch had driven by. And then five minutes later, five cars, all around us, flashlights <laughs> in my face. I'm not even joking with you. Like, yeah. hey, where are you going? So in, in those moments, like, naturally, like, you'd be ready to give back. When I say it to you, I was cool, calm. I didn't even care, like, that they chose. Like, what a waste of petrol. Because <laughs> really, like, all you could have done when you drove was ask me, hey, where are you going? I could have shown you my tag because you're doing your job, and I can appreciate that. Because, um, I mean, not everyone is obviously out for good intent. Um, but in that moment, literally, bra, I stay right around the corner. Like, it's not a hooking thing. It's not a hard thing. It's not a. But this is just me. Not everyone who be that way, and this, that's because of my experience. Like growing up, I didn't experience such great levels of, of pain and, uh, um, uh, I suppose, the pain of apartheid enough to get to the point where, like, in any conversation or any moment, I'm experiencing like cultural exclusion. I want to fight. No, if, if that's how you want to do things, cool. You can continue to do things your way. But how I choose to live my life is that I want to be culturally inclusive, which means I care about every single person that doesn't look like, like me. So and the thing that know. I actually really have to do is ask the right questions to understand their starting point. Because it's not the same as you or somebody else. Like, and then that, in and of itself, it creates levels or points of connection enough for over time to have a strong relational bond. Where we can joke about culture and racial stuff, and it not be
4: like so or harmful or hurtful or whatever.
0: Such a beautiful heart. Here
4: you go. Uh, so I just wanted to find out um, because, unfortunately, I think there that there have been individuals who have been raised in somewhat same environment as you, Sia. Um, however, I wanted to find out in the extreme sense that. You have people that have an extreme mindset that, all right, this is who I am. This is, okay, for instance, as you can hear with my accent, I'm dealing with Zulu people who automatically assume that I am Zulu. And they are offended the fact that I am not when I do say I am not. And, you know, and I've forgiven them because it is what it is. Um, I am. You have white people problems. That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, my question is more in a sense that as a leader or as a minister, and we we can foresee that one day we are going to be a multicultural church if we're not already, but we're multicultural within the black community, so we have zulu i um, mean we have zulus, zimbabweans um you know so it's quite multicultural in that sense, but how do we because you kind of are seeing people you know inquiring, can we come, who are of the beautiful?" You know, skin, and so they are inquiring, they want to come through, and then you're saying, okay, the people that we are with right now have an extreme mindset of, this is who we are, and we want to protect it at all costs. Um, That also includes certain mindsets that also can be poverty um, stricken mindsets, where it's going to be, if we do include, if I do have my sister coming in, and she says, I want to be a part of this, then we're going to deal with you know, just unnecessary politics of, okay, she probably has somebody who can give me a job. You know, it's just things that will just become and create a ripple effect. Um, and you want to integrate and you want to be in... I mean, you already see God is creating space already for that. But now, the thing is now with the people. <laughs> and...
1: Um, well, she is Thank you because he uh, <laughs> whispered yeah. to me, "This is an easy question. Uh, <laughs> I, I just I want to reverse it for you for a second if if for my cliff community, for example, I know the thing I need to do is expose them to more and more different colored people in adult to adult relationships, because the modeling from stage is going to result, but I don't have a three month plan to get there either. Your journey on it. Yeah,
2: I'd, I'd, so I definitely say that it, it takes quite a great deal of time to be able to change hearts, especially more so on the people that are in your church than the white lady coming in. Because yeah. um, this is why, I suppose, so the white person has to understand that the, you're carrying the hurts of your own, not engaging in a multi racial conversation. You can't just come in like oh I'm sorry and then that's it. You're carrying your ancestors' things on you um, and there has to be a lot of work done in the black white, from white person to black person. Black person to white person, there's a lot of forgiveness that needs to happen and letting go and um, healing that needs to happen within those and that I think is a little bit harder because man there was great deal of injustice that, that was done. Now, if I look at the guys in your congregation, it kind of seems like there needs to be like quite a great deal of mindset shift. I think it's a hard shift. Is, and I think if, I don't know who's the lead, who leads that. You. Do you lead the church? Yeah. So the, it almost has to, you guys have to slowly but surely do the work of helping guys heal, helping mindsets, mindsets shift, so that over time, as you slowly begin to integrate people of different color, they don't see them as an opportunity, but as an individual that I can begin to engage in conversation with to try and understand or try and actually just, hey, welcome to our church. It's so good to have you and just carry on living your life and not necessarily start from, uh, hey, man, this is my experience outside, mm-hmm. of, outside of church. And now let me see if I can change that because this person is obviously superior in my mindset uh, and then exploit that to my own good. That also isn't good. If you think about it, it sounds a little bit like, anyway. Um, uh, it's good. That's right. I, th- I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's what I think.
0: Okay, so we have got the looking up upstairs. I see there's a lot of hands. So we're going to give you guys, because it is a tea break. If you're welcome to go to your tea break if you need to. We're going to leave these guys on the floor. You can ask them questions. Unfortunately, the host has to also go. <laughs> so we've got the looking in thing upstairs. So, um, yeah, it was Thanks. very good. So we're going to open it up. I'm going to start with you, because you've been... So the rest of you, if you'd love to go, thank you for joining us. And it's been, very, it's been great, Ross and Sia. It's been so informative and helpful. And really, it's stuff we've got to process, right? And intentionally, like they were saying, intentionally walk through this journey. So over to you.
5: Thank you. I've got a bit of... I don't know if it's a deep question, but I hope, <laughs> I hope it makes sense to you. I just wanted to find out... Um, so we've sort of had this massive, so we've gotten from colonization to apartheid, and it's sort of been this massive, um, or sort of many years or generation to generation of just this oppression, if I may call it that. And what I just wanted to find out what do you think, how has it impacted the people who were oppressed? And how, how has that, some people call it the legacy of apartheid or colonization, how has that affected us and what is the church um, doing about it? Or what it, should the church's response be to all these mindsets or sort of all the generational things that we carry with us? Yeah.
1: It's, it's such a big question that we can't actually do it justice. But here's the sin, the ultimate sin and evil, is that white people destroyed black people's identity. That's, that was the, you, you see, um, resources you can recover. Uh, education, you can get re-educated. All the, all the trappings, all the other stuff, you can get back. But if you take a person's identity and then you, you speak a lie into the identity, you've cracked the fabric of the entire culture. The the evil is the identity theft. The healing is not to try and start at the top and work through the healing is on the identity restoration. No, you're not cursed. No, you're not all those things that were said about you. Actually, you've got probably more potential than I do. Man, this is what God's called you to. This is who he calls you. And that journey, that identity root cause healing, that will result in our nation's healing. Uh, Unfortunately, I think we have attacked this from often wrong angles. And so we can't see healing. You've obviously got to attack it from many angles, but the root is that the thing that that I got on my knees for was, Lord, we've stolen a people's identity. Please, can you give me a chance to fix that? That was that's been the journey.
2: And I think the way that we do that, and I, um, it, it, I don't think it's, there's any way to fix stuff without Jesus. Like, we can try by our own means, like, okay, let's try to level the playing field and make, let's just take the um, women equality, equal pay situation or women being seen in a certain way. Like, we can come up with systems and think great ideas to fix that thing. But if Jesus isn't involved in that or isn't the first thing or the main thing or the root of the solution – then we're going to at some point catch ourselves again because our brokenness is going to expose itself and might even amplify the problem somewhere down the line or start a new one. So if we stray far from Jesus when we're like, cool, how do we begin to do the work to actually start fixing some stuff? We need first need like a really deep heart change, a really deep soul change, allowing him to do the internal work that I have to own. And that doesn't It's not somebody else has to do the work for me or push me to doing it. But if I'm willing to do the work, because if we're saying uh, everyone needs to, all these people need to do X, Y, and Z, if someone is deciding for somebody else to do the hard work of finding Jesus, getting the healing, and then beginning the journey to actually start to fix some stuff, that's going to run short at a certain point and just run out. If it's Jesus and your own thing, just only, hey, I was wrong here. I could have done this better here. I need to forgive here. Imagine, for example, for... Example: If everyone grabbed a hold of that right now, where would SA be in five years? You gotta like. I refuse to believe that Jesus is not the answer. He has to be the first solution to anything that we face. You know, LGBTQ, all these things has to start with Jesus, and then you can begin to build from that.
0: Okay, let's take. Yeah, I think one more question, and then we'll we'll cut. Um,
3: Yeah. Um, okay. Now I can speak softer. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not. really a question, but like I just. I was really drawn to what you said about like when someone greets you in Zulu, and then you're just like, "Why? <laughs> you know what I mean?" Um, I, I. I. I live in a rural area, and I go to a. I go to a white church. It's. Also, it's a bit multicultural also, and um, I deal a lot with like kids ministry and youth. So, I had um these two girls they're still in primary school, and they' were asking me um, they're my neighbors also, and they're asking me um, why do they, why do the other kids just so my name's nipo so th- so they're asking me like, why do the other kids call you Nipo, and then we're supposed to say um, Malum Nipo or uncle Nepo like why because why don't we just call you Nepo like the other kids?" and I'm like, well um with how how we're raised up as Zulu people is that with um, someone who's older than you and not your family, or whatever, um, you'll you'll use malume or baba or something. Yeah. And um, I was also just explaining that to them, um, in the sense that, like, because um, this is just what I know. I might be wrong, but with white people, it's 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 usually it's usually a thing of. We usually go on the first name basis thing just for like familiarity and just trying to be on the same level and you know what I mean just to break that barrier between like you know what I mean it's more friendly with us it's more like you you having you having respect for the you know the other person and for me when I had to answer that question and just explain to them um, why that happens because um, like with with the parents I know the parents encourage them to say yo malum nipo and this this this. Um, so, what I try and do is um, you know when when I see a black person um, I also do that thing where I see a black person and I assume you' Zulu because like, I'm sorry, but i also do I also do that um like I will assume you Zulu and assume you know Zulu until you tell me otherwise <laughs> which is fine, so when I see an adults, for instance, um, someone who's new in my church, I'll always refer to them as Babus Banban or I'll ask them their surname because that's just how I know with, with our culture, that's what we do. So when if you came to my church, I'd probably okay, but you look very young and you know, I'll probably greet you in English, but then you know, someone else I could just greet in Zulu because I'm assuming you Zulu, but it's not even it's not even a thing of um, that I'm trying to offend you or, or something else. It's just that um, as much as as much as we are trying to you know you talk about like n- being neutral and everything, but at the same time you also just want also just want people to like embrace their culture and who they are um and so far as it doesn 't stand in the way of the work of the lord so it's uh, I always encourage you know people just to you know embrace their culture who they are um and and i don't know it 's not really a question but I just oh, I was touched by that, and this is how I usually deal with um things like that yeah.
2: Thanks, boot, Nibu.
0: Thank you, Nibu. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys, for your time and for your input and everyone that joined us. Enjoy your tea. We'll see you in the main hall after lunch. Thank
2: Thank you.